Hello and welcome to the Green Shoots podcast, a conversation about intellectual property focused on what matters most to innovators right now. We discuss managing, monetizing and protecting IP in the context of what's happening now in industry, IP law and beyond. I'm your host Charlie Leslie and I'm part of the IP team here at Appleyard Lees. Ordinarily a niche subject, patents are being discussed in the general press, particularly with regard to the role they play in driving or discouraging the development of vaccines and health technology. In this episode of the podcast, patent attorney and partner Richard Bray questions patent attorneys and partners Barbara Fleck, a life sciences specialist, and Kate Hickinson, a pharmaceutical specialist, about intellectual property issues surrounding COVID vaccines. What's the story behind the mainstream media headlines and soundbites? Kate, Richard and Barbara, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Charlie. Hi, good to be here today. Hello, Charlie. Thanks, Charlie. Yeah, as you said, I've got something of a strange perspective here where I don't really work in life sciences or in pharma or chemistry, but at the same time, I have got experience in IP, obviously. And one thing that surprised me in the last few weeks is how IP has made its way into mainstream media in relation to COVID. So we all know, at least on this podcast, why, but I'm guessing the wider audience might not know why. So, Kate, why do you think IP has sort of reared its head in things like the BBC News and The Guardian in relation to COVID and vaccines and treatments? Thanks, Richard. Well, as you said, we all know that vaccines can be patented, but I think there's been a lot of media coverage about the fact that Certain companies own the IP for vaccines, and it's not just the vaccines, it's also the treatments that are being used for COVID. And whether or not that's fair, and perhaps the general public don't have an understanding of why the pharmaceutical companies need to have patents on vaccines. What do you think, Barbara? Yeah, thanks, Kate. I think that that's probably true. I mean, one has to consider the enormous amount of investment that goes into developing medicines, not just vaccines, but also the treatments you mentioned, Kate. And really, pharmaceutical companies invest an awful lot of money and time into developing these these treatments. And therefore, IP rights are really essential to them to be able to protect that innovation. I think it's interesting, especially with COVID, that this has come up in the mainstream press. And I saw that there was a proposal put forward by over 100 countries to the WTO to ask that COVID-19 vaccines are exempted from IP rights. Now, this hasn't gone down well with other countries such as the EU, US, Japan, because they highlight that the IP system is actually part of the solution and that, as I said, companies have invested heavily in developing these vaccines and the reward are IP rights. Yeah, I mean, I don't often see these issues, for better or for worse. I'm a physicist, so I often stay away from anything sensitive like this. But it it really surprises me that when you see trademarks in the news, they're often viewed positively, like big brands like Coca-Cola and Pepsi and Nike and things like that. But often when you see patents in the mainstream media, I get the impression that they're often viewed or presented with sort of a negative slant or a negative filter. But do you think that's happened here with relation to COVID? I think it has. I think I've read a few articles about how much money the large pharmaceutical companies that have been developing the vaccines have been given by governments. And people have thought, well, if the companies have been given money by the governments, that's a slightly different situation. But 
we know that unless there's an agreement put in place before the work starts, then ownership of IP derives from inventorship. And in this case, if the money has been provided, then it's quite right under the IP laws that the the companies such as AstraZeneca and Pfizer actually own the IP, but perhaps that doesn't look very palatable to the general public. I think it's also interesting that some of the companies that have developed vaccines against COVID-19 have pledged to make the vaccine available on a not-for-profit basis, at least during the pandemic. I think that is a a very interesting um, move and not something that we have seen on that scale before, I believe. It's interesting, isn't it? Because some companies have said that they'll sell at cost price for a temporary period during the pandemic. But I can imagine that there may well be discussions as to when exactly the pandemic finishes and when the cost can go up. Also, I think Moderna have said that they won't enforce patents during the pandemic. But again, when does the pandemic end? It's Another thing that occurred to me was we're all assuming that the companies that have developed the vaccines have IP and that they can enforce that IP. Obviously, it's not always quite that simple. Just because you have a granted patent doesn't mean it's valid. There could be, in years to come, lots of oppositions filed at the EPO against these patents. And also, my understanding is that some of the vaccines rely on technology that's been developed fairly recently. Potentially, the companies making the vaccines could infringe other people's patents. It's not necessarily as straightforward as the companies that have developed the vaccines definitely have IP that they can enforce against other people. I can imagine that we're going to be potentially very busy in five, six years' time looking at some of these patents and whether they're valid or not. I think that's a that's a really good point because when we look at the two vaccine technologies that have been in the news, so the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is based on an adenovirus vector, and the Pfizer vaccine, and also the Moderna vaccine, which are both based on mRNA technology. Both technologies have been around for some time, especially the adenovirus vector-based technology. And there are patterns in both areas. And as Kate said, you know, it may well be that there are some uh, broad claims out there that those companies developing vaccines based on those technologies need to be aware of. For example, with the RNA vaccine, that's not a very stable molecule, mRNA. So therefore, there are various techniques about formulating the vaccine in such a way that you ensure better stability. And those are areas where there could well be patent protection already in place. Yeah, I mean, it's, it seems to me that without being too political about things, that often people see a headline or they see a sentence and, and they read, I guess, naturally what they want into it, whether it's negative or positive. And I think that's happened quite a lot here with the sort of the IP sentences on the, you know, on the newspapers and the websites. And for example, I think people see sometimes IP as a very negative right, which I guess by definition it is. It's, it's IP or patents are a negative right. But I mean, in terms of the sense or the sort of the, the bias they have, they view them as sort of having a negative force on the world. And I think, for example, people have been quite sceptical of how a vaccine could have been created so quickly and don't really understand there's been a huge amount of parallel inputs around the world in recent months, but also in recent years and decades leading to this. But it's occurred to me that the same is true for IP as well. People often focus on the output in terms of it, it stops people doing things. 
But IP is very important, as you've already touched on, especially in this sector of pharmaceuticals and, and life sciences. So just for the benefits of, I guess, the audience who maybe aren't familiar with some of the general points of IP, why is IP important, especially in these sectors? Why would you patent these things? Why would you look to protect these innovations? Well, to bring a new drug to the market is a massive task. It takes years and years of research and development. And I think as we enter the modern, more modern age, people won't tolerate side effects on drugs. And what you actually have to achieve to get a new drug onto the market is massive and it's really difficult. And just commer- you know, these are commercial companies. They need to be able to make money. They need the money to be able to put it back into more research and development. But there has to be some incentive for companies to, to do that work. I read that I think the current estimate is 2.6 billion US dollars to get a new drug to the market. Well, no company is going to spend that amount of money if they can't make some money from it or at least recuperate some of the costs. It's such a risky business and it's not easy to get a new drug onto the market. What do you think, Barbara? And one thing I've noticed as well, again, from, I guess, the outside looking in, is that it seemed interesting to me that it wasn't massive pharma company X that's been solving this problem on their own. But for example, there's a partnership with a university in the form of Oxford, or there's a partnership with a startup or spin-out in the form of bio and tech. But I found that inter- I found that interesting in itself as well, that I understand that's a pattern that's emerging recently in this sector. I think that's actually a really good point because it, it shows the collaboration that's been going on between, as you say, a university and a big pharma in the case of AstraZeneca and Oxford, and then a large pharma in the case of Pfizer and a small company in the case of BioNTech. So I think, with the ur- especially with the urgency of creating vaccines and treatments, um, when we are living through a global pandemic, collaboration is more important than ever. Of course, collaboration has always existed, but I think this has brought it to the forefront of the um, development of these drugs. And to see a university like the University of Oxford being involved with a large pharma is is really great. Of course, Sarah Gilbert's lab has been working on adenoviral vectors for quite some time. So, of course, they are experts in in that technology and and therefore perhaps a natural partner for AstraZeneca to work with. BioNTech in Germany, a smaller company uh, working with a large company such as Pfizer is also, um, I think, a really great thing to see. And of course, here in Cambridge, where I'm based, there, there are so many startup companies and small companies in the life sciences space that are doing really amazing work, not just to do with vaccines, but more generally in the healthcare sector. And it's really important to to have these companies because the innovation that goes on in these companies is absolutely amazing. I agree with you, Barbara. It's really great to see companies collaborating and universities collaborating on this, and hopefully that will continue into the future. From a patent attorney point of view, it can be a bit of a headache when companies work together and jointly own patents. So it'll be interesting to see who owns what when these assumed patent applications that have been filed are published and how things work out in the future with the prosecution and the companies working together. That's an interesting point that you raised there, Kate. And of course, at the moment, we don't know about all of the applications that have been filed in this area because a patent application publishes 18 months from the first date when it is filed. So 
I assume that there have been a lot of filings related to COVID vaccines, COVID treatments, and we don't know the content yet because these simply haven't been published. So we'll see that probably from, well, mid-2021, when I'm sure we'll see a lot of publications to do with COVID treatments. And it will be really interesting to see who has filed for treatments and what kind of treatments will be protected. We're talking a lot about vaccines, but of course, we mustn't forget that there has been a lot of innovation relating to COVID treatments as well. So there's an incredible amount of innovation going on. I think it'd be really interesting to see the the patent applications that publish in this area next year. While we're on the subject of patents in the press, repurposing often gets bad press too. But I think it's it's really important to understand that repurposing, in my view anyway, is is a really good thing. The safety profile of the drugs have already been well established. The pharmaceutical companies don't have to repeat the earlier stages of drug development to show the safety of the drug, and it gets drugs to patients quicker. I think also repurposing is especially important for rare diseases where there's a low patient population, which maybe makes original research for treating those diseases quite financially unrewarding. But often drugs that are already on the market can be repurposed and can be used against those different diseases. And that's a really important thing for patients. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned about repurposing, Kate. One thing that occurred to me and actually made me smile with my sort of IP hat on and yet not biotech or life sciences (laughs) was the different dosages of the sort of AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine where i'm not sure what the right wording is but they maybe they stumbled across or accidentally realized that is it the 1.5 dose which the press is using the, the phrase seems to work very well potentially and that made me smile from an ip perspective in that that's a very good example of maybe something that already exists as in their vaccine they might find the particular dose a new dose of that existing drug that existing vaccine works in a very particular way and i guess in your world you can get patents for surprising results like that of an existing medicine. Is that true? Yes, that's right, Richard. I was listening to the BBC earlier in the week or maybe last week when they were talking about the dosage of the AstraZeneca drug. And I did wonder to myself whether AstraZeneca had already filed on that before the BBC started talking about it. But there's all sorts of ways that you can protect drugs and dosage regimes are is one way. Also, it can be very difficult to formulate drugs. So you can file patent applications on formulations. And again, sometimes that's perceived as pharmaceutical companies trying to just extend the life of a patent when really they should only have a patent to the, the new chemical entity, to the actual drug itself. But there's an awful lot of research and effort put into these other inventions. And in my view, they are worthy of patents and the protection that the patents give. I was going to say, I'm not sure what your view is, Barbara, but I, I think we see this in physics and engineering as well, but it just doesn't get the controversy associated with it that you guys do. Like, for example, you might have in, say, physics or electronics, someone creates a diode, a light-emitting diode then, and it's, it's generally known and it's generally fantastic and it gets amazing results, amazingly efficient, 
it changes the world of diodes, LEDs. But then someone else finds a clever use of that, for example, in a reader or a transmitter or in some kind of clever system. You can get patents for that. You, know, you certainly can. And I don't think anyone in that field really has any controversial view on you know, extending protection, in quotes. It's just viewed as a new innovation. But I think that in your fields, there's more controversy associated with it purely because of the health benefits or otherwise. Do you think that's right? I think the public maybe just doesn't appreciate, as we've discussed already, the time and financial commitment to researching and developing new drugs and getting them on the market. Some of the press at the moment around the supply of the vaccine, I think, implies that if the patents weren't there, then the vaccines would just be manufactured and distributed really easily around the world and we'd all be vaccinated in six months' time. I'm not sure that's the case. I'm not sure that if the patents weren't in place that everybody else could just suddenly start manufacturing the vaccines. The companies need to have manufacturing capacity and there's all the supply chain issues and it's it's not fair in my view to just blame it on the existence of patents. I totally agree with you, Kate, because we talked a lot about the development of the vaccines and Richard mentioned the, the impressive speed in which this happened. But there is also the actual manufacture and distribution, which is a huge undertaking given that pretty much the whole population should be vaccinated. This is an enormous undertaking. And then when you look at some of the vaccines and the requirements they have, so the the Pfizer vaccine having to be kept at minus 70 degrees, that complicates, of course, the distribution and storage. So this is an enormous undertaking that requires um, logistics that are incredibly complicated and complex. It really does emphasise the point we made at the beginning that People see IP as sort of the output, like the gloss, but people forget there's a huge amount of input that goes into the research and development of anything in this area. And as I think Kate just said then, that that's the tone I've got, basically, is if you read the BBC article, it's well-written and well-meaning and The Guardian and other papers, it's really interesting stuff. But I think it doesn't quite scratch beneath the surface of IP. And I think the tone of some of the articles I've seen seems to suggest that without patents, everyone will get vaccinated. People seem to forget that I think without patents, there might not have been a vaccine in the first place for all sorts of different reasons. Do you think that's fair? I do. And I think Barbara made the point earlier that a lot of the technology that's been used to make these vaccines, the companies have been working on for years. It's not something that has just been developed in the last six months when we've needed the COVID vaccine. So Kate and Barbara, you've mentioned quite a few times already about there's lots of innovation in this space in the last few months. And um, one client that I work with as used the phrase like warlike, you tend to see a lot of innovation or a great pressure to innovate in a warlike scenario, both in terms of need, you need solutions to problems, but also in terms of the resource. And to some extent, there's a huge amount of people and money and time, I suppose, potentially in parallel processing to drive innovation. So it seems like you're already seeing that in your sectors and with your clients. And is that fair? Is that true? Yes, Richard, I think that's that's definitely true. I mean, we already talked about the various collaborations that have been going on to develop the vaccines that are in the press. And I also mentioned that there are a lot of treatments that are being developed that some are covered in the press and others are not. And I, I really think a lot of companies pivoted to COVID research very, very quickly and focused on developing vaccines or, or treatments for COVID. And, and we've actually seen it with some of our clients as well. 
who have been working on some exciting inventions in the COVID area. And, and I think from a personal point of view, I've, I've worked in the biotech industry for over 20 years. And I think it's, it's actually really great to see the appreciation of the work that's been done in the industry and people realize that you know there are a lot of companies out there that have incredible scientists and incredible expertise and tackle these really complex diseases and that's now covered in the press more than ever and I, I think in some ways that's really great to see that actually the, the biotech industry the pharma industry is is seen as providing really really important solutions. Yeah that's really interesting Barbara I mean, I've seen increased innovation in this area as well from a physics and engineering like angle as well and it's really made me I don't know quite pleased and proud that I guess as a society you really can solve these problems quickly and efficiently and effectively when we put our mind to it and it's really staggered me that this the level of innovation that's happened in the last six to nine months and and the pace of it what do you think Kate? I completely agree and from my point of view it's really nice to see science in the press, being talked about and being appreciated and solving a problem that's affected us all so massively over the last nine months. So there's clearly lots of innovation in this space in the last six to nine months, as we've been discussing throughout the podcast. I guess with that comes potential problems and conflicts with IP rights. And as Barbara touched on earlier, there's been some interesting output from or in relation to the WTO, the World Trade Organization, in relation to IP rights in and amongst COVID vaccines and treatments. And Barbara passed me an article just a few days ago at this very point, and it was touching on potentially waiving IP rights around COVID vaccines and treatments during the pandemic. And for me, at least in my area, you might potentially in theory see that sort of thing mentioned, but in practice, I've never seen that sort of tone and sentiment used in relation to a physics invention or an engineering invention. And it really made me think quite long and hard about some of the impacts in the thinking and intent behind waiving rights, which is obviously quite serious, during a pandemic, which I guess is quite indeterminate. What does that mean? And around COVID treatments and vaccines. I mean, there are some huge issues in just a few words there. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, I read the same article, Richard. And Firstly, it said that for the waiver, the WTO waiver to be put into effect, it needs approval by three quarters of the WTO members. I do wonder if that approval will ever be obtained. But if the waiver was put into effect, as I understand it, the idea is that the WTO member states would not grant or enforce patents related to COVID. That might sound quite simple, but when I read that, I thought, how on earth are we going to decide which patents or patent applications relate to COVID. In my view, that doesn't necessarily just mean vaccines or treatments. Surely that could also cover ventilators, parts for ventilators. I could imagine us being in a position where rather than doing our normal job where we're arguing with the patent office over whether something's novel and inventive, to begin with, we have to argue with the patent office as to whether the invention we're looking at is related to COVID such that it should be actually examined in the first place. You know, would the patent offices just park all these patent applications that potentially relate to COVID? It's, in my view, it's really hard to see how this would, would work in practice. Yeah, absolutely agree. I can't see how that would work in practice. And I also agree with you, Kate, that it's 
probably unlikely that this waiver would be granted. Personally, I can't see this happening. It also strikes me as interesting that um, actually other patent offices are accelerating prosecution of COVID-related applications. The USPTO, the patent office in the United States, has a, a program which allows you to accelerate the prosecution of your COVID-related invention um, to get a granted patent, which is quite opposite the, the idea of, of the waiver that's been put forward to the WTO. Yeah, I, I was smiling as you said that because I'm guessing that the US and probably some other big economies are probably not in favour of a waiver, I guess, where, where the big pharmaceutical companies are based. And you, and you can see why. I mean, I, it, it seems to me that, again, that, that's a good example of maybe the inbuilt conflict in a patent system where the patents and the IP system generally promotes innovation because people can protect it when they've provided the R&D. But at the same time, I guess you have this inbuilt conflict of patents are a negative right, which ultimately can be used to stop people doing things. It's really interesting, though, that as we touched on earlier, lots of the companies are saying that they won't enforce their rights or, you know, at least during the time of the the period of the pandemic. So maybe actually we can rely on the good behavior, we could say, of the pharmaceutical companies so that we don't need this waiver. And actually, the companies and the universities and the manufacturers will work together and perhaps voluntary licenses might be granted by these companies. The pharmaceutical companies want to get these vaccines and treatments out there, don't they? And hopefully a waiver such as is being discussed isn't needed. So yeah, we've touched on WTO issues and, and potential waivers. And it occurred to me that at least when I've been growing up in the patent profession, that other areas of IP might come into play here. For example, the rarely used phrase of crown use or compulsory licensing. And at least when I was learning in the profession, they were terms and phrases that were sort of thrown about for use in, for instance, emerging and emergency situations, which to me back then, well, a, a global pandemic would fit the bill there. Do you see the sort of the WTO waiver as a way around those issues or potentially a way of just making that go away? Yeah, I agree, Richard. I learned about crown use and compulsory licenses for exams. And it seems to me that if it's not used now, it's never going to be put to use. I don't think it's actually something that comes into play here because the vaccines are being produced. They are being manufactured. They are already getting to the population in the UK. People have already been vaccinated with the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. So, so personally, I can't really see any reason to invoke crown use in, in these circumstances. So I think it's a really positive message for IP generally. Thanks, Kate. I mean, that's, I think, maybe quite a good tone to end the podcast on. And I thought it was worth doing this podcast because just to go back to the start, I mean, I, I've got 18 years experience in IP, but I don't work in the life sciences sector at all, apart from some medtech inventions, I suppose. And it just occurred to me that reading some of the headlines in the papers and the websites, to repeat what I said earlier, just missed lots of the subtleties around the importance of IP, not just now, but just in general, and how innovation can help us all. Yeah, thanks again, Barbara, and thanks again, Kate, and thanks to Charlie again for hosting the podcast. Thanks. That was a really interesting chat. Thank you. That's great. Thank you very much for the conversation. Thanks for listening to the Green Shoots podcast by Appleyard Lees. If you have a question or issue you'd like our IP specialists to discuss on the podcast, then tweet us at Appleyard Lees or email us at ip at appleyardlees.com.